So 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So that's the passage that we're going to be in. And, and, and Dave actually asked me to, you know, the other speakers will really focus on whatever parts of the passage they want to, whatever they feel led. But Dave actually asked me to kind of uh, focus on the first two verses of this passage, and in particular on the topic of sin. Thus, boom, sin, right? And so, you know, I, one, just to start off with, so First John, it's a letter. So the, the Apostle John, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, he's writing a letter to a particular body of believers. We're not sure exactly which body of believers. And so uh, it's, it's situational in nature, that there's a particular situation that he is writing to, whether it be particular questions that these people are asking or particular situation that they're dealing with. And, you know, as you read through First John, what something that kind of becomes aware is... Uh, he's addressing sort of the fallout in this community of um, a group of people among them who are denying that Jesus actually is kind of the son of God in the flesh, right? So they're denying that, um, and they are kind of holding themselves up as being sort of spiritually uh, and maybe even intellectually superior to the, the rest of the group. And so they've actually separated themselves from the community. And so John is writing to this group of believers to sort of address that fallout and just the confusion that's coming as a result of that. And so in verse 1, 
I love that he makes a very clear statement, right? I, I love any time in the scripture where they make a very clear statement, right? He says, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin, right? So it's very unambiguous. He's writing these things to us so that we will not sin, right? And, and actually, if we back up a step to the end of chapter 1, so just a, a couple of lines from the end of chapter 1, right before he makes a statement, if we could uh, take a look at that. But at the end of chapter 1, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us, right? And so I think what's clear here from the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, is that Jesus' desire and his intention for us is that we would recognize the sin and the brokenness in our lives, confess it so that we can be forgiven, and actually turn from it, right? Turn from it and learn to walk in the way of Jesus. Learn to walk in the way of, of love and life. And so as I was kind of thinking about this topic of sin, I had this really cool talk planned. Like I was going to like make this really cool chart <laughs> and, and stuff. It was going to be cool. But actually, I, I just really felt like not that that topic isn't important. Like defining what is sin is an important conversation to have that we should have. But I just felt like I wanted to skip over that question, actually, and get to a question that I feel like maybe is more pressing on our minds, which is, why do we still sin? Right? And so I'm actually going to kind of skip over the question of what is sin. And I want to talk about the question, why do we still sin? Because I feel like this might be a question that a lot of us kind of wonder and contemplate and, and can be perplexing to us. Now, I, I think there are some obvious reasons why we might continue to live in sin, some that are given to us here in this passage. One, like we read in the end of chapter one, is uh, because we're deceived. Like we, we don't see ourselves as being sinners or having anything that we need to confess or need forgiveness for. And so, yeah, I mean, why do we continue? Why does someone like that continue to sin? It's because we are deceived about my own, our own need and our own spiritual or moral condition. I think another reason is maybe we might be resigned. <laughs> like we're resigned to sin. And I think we actually see that being addressed here in this letter and to kind of this faction that has gone out from this church that um, that this kind of faction who has gone out, it seems like they were sort of more of the Greek philosophical mindset. And just to kind of really quick, um, basically in Greek philosophy, there was this idea that the, the material world, the, the, the fleshly world is evil. And um, the spiritual world, that is where kind of the domain of, of, of enlightenment and truth is. Right? And so there was kind of this saying where it's like the, 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 the food, the stomach is for food and food is, no, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. And what that basically meant was, you know what, the flesh is going to do the flesh, right? The flesh is going to be flesh, right? And that it's kind of like this, this fallen material fleshly world, it, it just, it's evil. And, and so it, the flesh is going to do the flesh and it's just, don't, they weren't concerned with that, right? But really they were concerned with, you know, what really matters is spiritual enlightenment, spiritual knowledge, that that actually is what matters. And don't worry about the flesh. The flesh is just going to do the flesh. And so there was sort of this kind of resign, resignation to sin. Like, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, yeah, we're all sinners. It doesn't matter. 
that's just what the flesh does. But what really matters is having spiritual insight, having spiritual knowledge, being, being enlightened, right? And so, you know, I, I think that could be also a reason why we might continue to, to be in sin, continue still to struggle with sin. So those are kind of maybe some of the more uh, obvious reasons. And so, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that even under grace, Jesus still cares about how we live. Like, it still matters, right? I mean, he says very, John says very clearly, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. So it still matters to Jesus how we live and, and I guess the moral condition of, of our lives. But I think what is less clear, the, the, the less clear situation is what I think many of us are kind of in, many of us who are, who are listening um, at home, which is, but you know, those two situations don't describe me. Like, I am committed to following Jesus. And as best as I'm able, I, I am sincerely trying to follow him and, and, and try to become more like him and, and to be a disciple of Jesus. Yet I still struggle with sin. I still find myself in, being in this, this tension and this push and pull uh, of sin in my life. Like, why do, why do I still sin? Right? And so I think that's maybe the situation that, that many more of us might find ourselves in. And so here I'm going to give you guys the answer that I have to give you today, right? You ready for this? The answer, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really sure, which I don't think I'm supposed to say when I'm up here, but I, I don't know, actually. Um, it's baffling, isn't it? It's, it's, it's so baffling sometimes. Like this, this tension, that, that push and pull almost feels like we're... I, I, I gave my life to Jesus, and I feel like Jesus has genuinely come into my life and done something in me, but I still feel like I'm sort of in this, this, this cycle uh, of sin, right? And so I don't know. I don't really know why that happens. And so some of you guys are thinking, man, that's really, Jay, that is really worthless. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> Thank you for, for nothing. But here is what I do know, okay? Let me, let me give you something a little bit more, more better. What I do know is that I see this same tension and the same push and pull of sin described in the experiences of the disciples in Scripture. Okay, that's what I do know. That that same tension that you guys experience, I see it described in the lives of disciples. And let me just give you guys a couple of really quick examples. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, right? Um, that, you know, he famously, when Jesus was being crucified, he denied Christ three times, right? Even to the point, the third one was a little girl. And he, he just did not have the courage. And, and he had this kind of struggle with fearing man that he denied Christ three times, right? But then, you know, we see in the beginning of the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, comes upon Peter, and suddenly this coward who can't even claim to know Jesus in front of a little girl, suddenly he became this bold preacher, right? He's just standing in front of this, these crowds and, and preaching the gospel openly, right? And so you would think, it feels like, cool, no more struggle with, you know, courage, no more struggle with, uh, you know, having that fear of man, not being able to courageously claim Jesus, right? Like, he's not going to struggle with that anymore. No, wrong. <laughs> because if you read in Galatians, you see that the Apostle Paul, he actually describes a situation where um, at one time in this church community, 
right? Because in this new community of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles were mixing together, right? They were, in, in a way that I had never done before, they were becoming one community and mixing together, right? But it says, it, but Paul tells us in Galatians that at this one time, these Jews came from another place, and they were kind of more like uh, uh, legalistic kinds of Jews who, who believed that, you know, even as followers of Jesus, you needed to uh, observe the, the law. And so when those Jewish believers came into the community, it says that Peter, he sort of started to kind of scooch away from the Gentile believers in that community. Whereas before, he was mixing with them freely, Right? They were one body. When this body, when this group of Jewish Christians came into the community, he sort of you know, started uh, pulling away from the, the Gentile believers. And Paul says that he confronted Peter to his face. He said, I got in Peter's face to be like, what are you doing? Right? How are people supposed to know the, the truth that we are now one in Christ if you're going to act like this? And so we see that even after this great, you know, moment in this grace transformation, this great power came into Peter's life at Pentecost, he still seems like he was struggling a little bit with this sin, right? Of, of, of being bold and not having a fear of man, being able to be courageous about his, his, his faith in Christ. Another example is Paul himself, right? Paul in the letter to the Romans, what, what, what's that famous passage? He says, I do what I don't want to do. And what I don't want to do, that is the thing that I do, right? Which sounds a whole lot like this push and pull that we're, we're, we're talking about here that a lot of times we experience, right? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what I do know, even though I don't know why, even though when Jesus comes into our life, why we continue to kind of, you know, experience this sort of cycle of, of sin in our lives, what I do know is that that the disciples in the scriptures are also described as having that same experience, that push and pull tension with sin, right? It's not that the sin in our lives doesn't matter. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. It, it matters. But he says also in verse 1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So there's an acknowledgement. Actually, it's a very optimistic, it's very optimistic of John. But if anyone sins, like if, of course, like when, it should say when, but it's a very optimistic phrasing. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the word advocate there, it can mean counselor. And actually, it's a, it's a picture of like a legal representative, like a, a legal defender. Right? So a counselor, a legal representative, a helper. And it says that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. Um, right? he, he was an atoning sacrifice for us. And so there's this image of, of turning away punishment, turning away wrath, and also of cleansing, right? that Jesus is that for us. So yes, it matters. And yes, we, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, and I actually should probably say when you do sin, know that you have an advocate in Jesus, right? And, and if, if, maybe this is one of those things where if you've been in church long enough, it's so obvious that you, do, you don't even say it. But just in case there's anybody in here who doesn't quite know this or anybody who's listening who doesn't quite know this, I think what we should gather from this is that God is for you, right? Jesus 
is for you. Right? He wants you. He desires to have a relationship with you. He forgives you. And it, it doesn't seem like there's any limit to it. Like, do you guys remember that interaction that the, the disciples had with Jesus in the Gospels? Where they're like, hey, how many times should I forgive my brother if they sin against me? And they're like, up to seven times? Like, they thought that was like a really spiritual answer. Up to seven times? And he says, no, uh, uh, up to uh, 70 times seven, which was actually just another way of saying there is no one. Right? And that absolutely, absolutely is a reflection of God's heart towards us when we sin against him. There is no limit to how many times he will forgive us, how many times he will welcome us back in. Right? And so, you know, the reality is, yeah, there's, there still is this push and pull and, and tension of sin in our lives, but what we do know is that when we do sin, we have Jesus as an advocate, that he is for us, that he desires us, that he will forgive us, and there really doesn't seem to be any limit to how many times we can come to him and return to him and, and come in, in repentance. And so I, I think maybe the conclusion that we can come to is that this, I don't know why we continue to have this sort of like cycle of sin in our lives and this push and pull, but it, it seems to be part of the journey. Right? It is a part of the journey of discipleship with Jesus. But here's the thing. I think here is the critical difference between sort of the cycle of sin with Jesus and the cycle of sin without Jesus. And, and I, this is, I think, the critical difference. The cycle of sin without Jesus is a cycle down. Okay? It's a cycle down. That we... When, when we're in this cycle of sin without Jesus, you know, we, we sin, right? We, we stumble. You know, the, the brokenness in us, it, it manifests itself. Um, and then inevitably what comes next is shame, right? We experience that, that, that shame. And a lot of times with that fear, right? Fear of condemnation um, and, and, and the self-loathing, right? And then maybe what comes with that is the, the hiding, or, or the bargaining with God, like, God, I, I, you know, I, I promise I'll never do this again. Right, God, I, you know, if you will just, you know, if, right? Like, the, the, it, it's, a, it's, it's a cycle down, right? But with this cycle of sin with Jesus is a cycle up, right? That it's a cycle up that when we do sin and when we do stumble and we, we mess up, you know, we move into love, right? We remember how much Jesus loves us. We move into forgiveness. We move into gratitude and joy and freedom and into hope. So, you know, yes, we're, we're continuing to be in sort of the cycling of sin, but it's a cycle up with Jesus. And that's the critical difference. You know, this actually might be the, the hardest part for us to really believe and grab onto, I think, in, in our practice of our of our discipleship and our relationship with Jesus, I think this is actually the part that we struggle with the most, right? To, you know, that when we stumble or when we mess up or whatever, yes, of course it matters how we live. Yes, our sin matters. You know, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. But I think we almost feel obligated to cycle down, you know? I, don't, I think we almost, we're just so used to that pattern, that paradigm, that we almost feel obligated. Like, I have to feel ashamed, right? <laughs> I need to feel ashamed. 
And we, we, we just go into the pattern of, of being afraid, or we, we go into the, 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 the pattern of um, hiding or, or feeling like we need to bargain with God and, and make promises to God or, or whatever it might be, right? We, we feel obligated to go into this cycle down, this cycle of shame and self-loathing and punishment. But what's truly radical about the gospel of grace, right, the gospel of Jesus, is that when we stumble, that we can actually skip over that, right? We can actually skip over that and move immediately into love and move immediately into forgiveness, and into freedom, and into joy, and into hope. But sometimes I think it's really hard for us to actually embrace such a radical gospel. Right? It's such good news that we actually can't even believe it, and we can't even accept it. You know, I, um, so I don't know if you guys know, but I, I work in operations. <laughs> so my Monday through Friday is in like an operations. And so, like, I just remember a while back, I was reading this article about, like, how to implement change, right? So, like, whether it be, like, a new system or a new process or just how to, how to implement something new. And, you know, obviously, one way to implement something new is you stop the old process, you stop the old way, and then you start the new way, <laughs> right? But in this article, they were saying that there's actually another way that you can implement something new or a new process or a new system, new way of doing things is you actually set up the new way in parallel with the old way, right? That you set them up in parallel, and as you let the new way grow and gain momentum, and as people begin to experience how much better the new way is, that eventually the old way just passes away and falls off, right? As, as, they, as they grow into that new way. And so, yes, I mean, we are still in sort of this push and pull and this tension and this cycling of sin, right? But it's a new system. We're, we're, we're in this new system. We're cycling up instead of cycling down. And by the grace of God, as we continue to walk with Jesus in this process, chains begin to fall and break. Wounds begin to heal. Strongholds in our lives begin to come down. And new life grows and gains momentum until the old way passes away. That's, that's the vision. That's the hope of this, this discipleship that we have, this relationship that we have with Jesus. This would be a really good place to end <laughs> this message. But I have this very bad habit. I always do one thing too many <laughs> in all of my messages. I don't know why, but I always do. This would be a great place to end, but I, I, I want to just do one more thing before we end. Um, because the last phrase in, in verse 2, it, it kind of just, it, 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 it perks something in me. So maybe we, if we can, Michael, sorry to spring it on you, but if we can put verse 2 back up. Um, yeah, so in verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. And so that last phrase right there, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know, like maybe it's because we just came off of our vision series where we're talking about the values of One Life City Church. But when, when, when I came across that phrase, I couldn't help but think about our fourth value, which uh, Kate, our sister Kate, so... Uh, wonderfully shared about last week. But the, the, the fourth value of our church is um, cultivating justice 
and shalom, both locally and globally, right? And, you know, one of the things is, for us in sort of a Western Christian context, or if you guys came coming from an evangelical Christian context, or even just like a U.S. Uh, Christian context, is we tend to be very individualistic. And when we talk about sin, we tend to think of it almost exclusively in an individual sense, right? Like my sins and dealing with my sins and confessing my sins. And, and that's, so we, we tend to think of it or only think of the individual context. But, you know, it, it, this, this kind, of, kind of brought me back, and I am not the right person to, to talk about these things, so I'm only going to touch on this. I'm, I'm not the right person to go deep into these things, honestly. There are many people here who, who are more qualified to talk uh, in, 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 in more depth on these things. But one of the things that it kind of brought me back to is when I, when I was in seminary, I was exposed to some of the uh, teaching of Latin American liberation theology, right? And, and even more so as I've been a part of this community at One Life City Church and just a lot of the conversations that we're engaged in in, in society these days. But one of the ideas that um, I kind of learned about from you know, Latin American liberation theology is this idea of sin also being systemic, right? That, that sin and the problem of sin is greater than just our, our individual sins, right? But that's usually what, the only thing that we think about. But that... Um, that sin and the power of sin, right, and the corruption of sin can actually be embedded within the, the systems and the structures of our society. Right? Because the systems and the structures of our society are created by people, people who are sinners, <laughs> right? People who, um, you know, maybe either have ill intent or who have uh, particular biases or whatever, but because sinful people are the ones who create these systems and these institutions and these structures of our society, that a lot of times that sin and the power of that sin to cause suffering or to oppress or to damage you know, people or people groups can actually get embedded into those systems. And, and what that means is that, that even absent of, even absent of a, an active evil player who is actively trying to inflict harm on somebody through, you know, these social structures and these systems in our society, that even the structures themselves, because they have the remnant and the legacy of sin embedded within them, can still actively cause harm and cause suffering and cause oppression to people, even without someone actively trying to, you know, do that against somebody else. That's not a technical definition. Like I said, there's better people to explain this, but that's my best understanding of kind of this conversation. And so, like I said, I'm not going to go deep into this because I can't go deep into this. But here's, here's what I, I wanted to, the point that I wanted to make. You know, as we stated earlier, if God's will is for us, his people, to one, recognize our own sin, confess it, and begin to walk in a new way, walk in the way of love and of grace, walk in the way of Jesus, then is it also not incumbent upon us as the people of God to recognize the powers of sin embedded within the structures of our society and our institutions and confess them and try to move towards the way of grace and love and compassion and justice, right? Because even if 
me or, or you are not actively trying to hurt somebody or damage somebody through these structures, the power of sin may already be embedded within them, right? And so it's on us to recognize that, to call it out, to confess it, and maybe to work to change it, right? And so I, I just thought that that was at least worth, I mean, how, how many sermons do we have that are just focused on the topic of sin? So while we're here, we might as well, you know, we might as well, you know, sit a while and, and take a look around. But so I, I just felt like that was worth mentioning. And so I want to encourage you guys, I, am, I promise I am landing this plane, but I want to encourage you guys, so we're going to be in this passage for the next month. So, you know, during the week, read through 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Read through the entire 1 John, if you can. Stew in it, soak in it. And maybe even, you know, if you have questions, make note of them for the panel. But, you know, just as I end, I just want to kind of review where we've been, that basically, you know, God is for you. If you didn't hear anything, maybe you tuned out or whatever, God is for you. Jesus is for you. He wants you. He wants to free you to walk in a new way of life. But know that this kind of, this, this push and pull and this tension, this cycling of sin in our lives, it's part of the journey. It is part of the journey. But not the old cycle. Not the old cycle down. You know, not the cycle of fear and shame, you know, of, of hiding, of condemnation, but it's this new way, the new cycle, which is a cycle up. You know, a cycle of love and forgiveness and gratitude and joy and hope. And by the grace of God, may you start to see chains in your life begin to break. Strongholds in your life begin to come down and wounds begin to heal.